0: Fishkin is the founder of Moz. It's a simple, direct sentence. But it's easy to mistake simplicity for story, because founding Moz took high-stakes gambles, a spat of self-discovery, and a few hard-boiled debt collectors littered along the way. I recently caught up with Rand at this year's Inbound event for the second of our two live recordings. Rand tells me why he's through pursuing the venture capital game, how he's taking what he learned from founding Moz to help his latest company, SparkToro, grow better, and we even get a chance to sneak in some Dungeons & Dragons talk. I'm Megan Keeney-Anderson, and this is The Growth Show.
1: Uh, the pillow game here is on point.
0: It's really good. Yeah. It's pretty solid.
1: I feel like it's a cruelty to have such nice decor for a podcast.
0: I know, because no one can see it.
1: Yeah, Well, a very limited audience.
0: But on the plus side, my shirt's wrinkled, and I'm not wearing all that much makeup right now, so I'm in good shape.
1: Yeah, uh, this humidity is not great for...
0: Any sort of hair. Mm -hmm. Any sort of hair at all. Um, Cool. Well, I am glad that humidity aside and all the other obligations aside, you found time to sit down with us, um, because I think you have uh, one of the most interesting career stories um, out there as far as taking um, just a, a, a different, slightly different route to everything, not always kind of following uh, the, the path that previous entrepreneurs and, and business owners have, have followed. And so I want to spend a little bit of time on that, if that's okay with you, and start very early, sure, uh, way back in college. Okay. Uh, where'd you go to school?
1: Uh, the University of Washington. At the time, very affordable. I was making $4.75 uh, cents an hour at a part-time job, and I was able to pay my tuition.
0: Everybody in the room just got a little bit like uncomfortable about their own student loans. So what were you thinking you wanted to do when you were there?
1: <laughs> I mean, I was really hoping that girls might someday like me. <laughs> that, was, that was one of my big goals in college. Um, and worked out right after I left, not, not so much during college. Uh, I think I technically was majoring in finance, which I have and had no interest in. It
0: seems like a weird fit.
1: Yeah, no, not a good good fit for me at all. I dropped out of school two classes away from graduating and uh, started working with my mom, Jillian, and she'd been running this company, this marketing consultancy for 20 years. Mm -hmm. It was her company I was joining, and I was just the the web design person.
0: That in and of itself to sort of join a startup that is led by your mom is...
1: I'm pretty sure sure mom and son startup is the least commonly backed combination, co-founder combination.
0: Not a lot of VCs going after that. No, they're not. How was she as a boss?
1: She was a great boss, actually. Yeah. Great boss. I think um, the challenges that come from working with family come from when there's not a clear uh, power structure. Uh, My mom and I had plenty of years of tough challenges. And I think a lot of that conflict comes when it's not clear who is working for or with whom
0: right when you're trying to be partners as opposed to yeah. sort of having that hierarchy
1: and that's tough too right because I think like you know as a young person you're trying to prove your worth to your parents and prove your independence to your parents and and then to also be working with a parent that makes for a big challenge
0: yeah so what was tell us about the business what, what came of it
1: <laughs> um, we did everything wrong that you can possibly do wrong as a consulting business and found ourselves so deeply in debt that we were unable to make the minimum payments on our credit card debt uh. in 2004. And then by '05, uh, our debt had gone from maybe like $150,000 to $500,000, you know, cause the penalties and interest, yeah. up really quick.
0: That's gotta be a scary moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I think I, I opened Lawson Founder, right, with the uh, the story of the debt collector who found me at work and then was also waiting for me at home. Um, and those, those guys are big and scary. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're just there to serve you papers, but
0: that, yeah. they take Here's themselves as type.
1: seriously as bounty hunters. Like,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, I was super young, too, right?
0: It's a lot, lot. Early
1: 20s and just kind of clueless in a ton of ways and not thinking about what does this debt really mean and and how bad is it. Uh, I think it's scarier on reflection than it was in the moment, which is weird.
0: Yeah. So what was the turning point?
1: So I had started this blog called SEO Moz, just in my spare time, like a, a personal sort of project to share my challenges learning SEO. We basically there's still, <laughs> I know there's one guy who's still real mad that we couldn't pay him. So we, we stopped being able to pay our SEO subcontractors mm-hmm. right around 2004 or five. And so I had to pick up all that work myself, right? And I didn't know the practice very well. Um, I had learned a little bit in like 0203, but, you know, barely anything. And so I was trying to learn and, and do it for our clients. And it was, SEO today is a difficult field to learn. Yes. But back then it was next to impossible, yeah, well, there's just nothing out there, right? No there.
0: resources. You're doing it all from just rumors and learning from people on the fly, and trying things.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would, I would literally, you know, have like, okay, hey, mom, can I, can I use a hundred bucks because I wanna, I wanna like have a phone call with this Finnish guy who like supposedly knows all this stuff about SEO. It was actually very helpful, and I, I remember I had an hour long phone call with this guy him? from on one of the SEO forums, yeah. like early SEO forum days, right? So I was basically trying to learn everything I could and then putting it into this blog so that other people could learn SEO as well because I thought it was ridiculous that this information was so hard to find and you know, the search engines were really secretive, all the consultants were really secretive. And that, I mean, I guess it was content marketing, but I didn't realize it was content marketing. Right. And it, it took off. Yeah. So that, that started getting us clients. It started getting me speaking gigs. Uh, it, and the, the, the blog posts are not any good right? Like if you no? oh, if you go back and you read a blog post on, you know, Moz. Early
0: days, Moz. Yeah,
1: like from 2005, 2004, 2006, you're gonna be like, well, this person cannot write well and their topics are mostly uninteresting. And I'm not sure this is good advice, but I mean, I was one of the only people trying.
0: Yeah, I mean, you were filling a void.
1: Yeah, it was, it was basically me and Aaron Wall from SEO book, if anyone remembers.
0: Then SEO Moz started to gained traction, and eventually started to expand beyond consulting and content.
1: Yeah. So this was a totally unintentional, like an accidental success story, right? We we had a small team in 2007. There were five, maybe six of us. Mm -hmm. One of them was a guy named Matt Inman, who people probably know better today as The Oatmeal. He's like a comic illustrator. So we worked together for like five years. And Matt um, was a, a talented programmer. And I think he's He's since given up on that. He doesn't, he doesn't enjoy it. But um, he built a bunch of tools because we were doing SEO work. And he was like, "This doing this manually is ridiculous. Like having to go to Google and having to get Pagerank, rank, and having to do all, just all this junk. Like I'll, I'll build a bunch of software that will do all this stuff. Yeah. We were using it internally. And I was like, Matt, I want to show this off to people. I think it'll help get us a lot more consulting clients and like higher paying ones if they can see, you know, these cool tools you built. And he's like, our servers can't handle the bandwidth. Like, no, we're not, we can't make it public. I was like, okay, what if we put up like a PayPal paywall and you have to PayPal us like 39 bucks a month before you can access the tools? And he was like, ugh, fine. <laughs> a lot of engineers are grumpy, but Matt was particularly grumpy. Um, in a delightful way, like in a charming way. Uh, and so he did that, I think, over Christmas break, like the holiday break from 2006 to seven, And then we, we launched the software in February and the software subscription by July... Was doing as much revenue as the consulting business, and we went. Whoa, wait a minute!
0: Did that surprise you?
1: Yeah, it was not. That was not the goal.
0: Yeah, right. The goal was: I, I want to be
1: able to show off our software to people so that we can get more consulting clients. Right. Not. Oh, wait. Maybe software subscriptions is a great business model.
0: So, does that divide your attention too much? You know, having to basically run two companies: a consulting company and a product company.
1: In some ways, yes, but. It's also awesome when you have close relationships and consulting-style relationships with lots of customers, yeah. right? Because then you can learn from them You know, in the platform. It's not just, okay, well, how many people went to this page of the tool or that page of the tool and what do they do here or there? It's a much more interactive experience, right? You can learn a lot more right. from them. So I think that the consulting is what made us decent at making tools and software.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And very frankly, I think... The only reason we stopped consulting was because i I had it in my head a that I had to raise raise a bunch more venture capital yep, and b, I kept hearing from all the vCs I pitched who turned me down that services revenue was basically the Satan of the world right that if if we had any services revenue, then we were technically more of a services company and I think that now all of them are probably eating those words, right? Because the companies that have been very successful in B2B SaaS have been companies with strong consulting-like presences.
0: So, okay, but you did take it to VCs in the beginning. What was that experience like? Uh,
1: In the middle of 2007, some investors reached out to me uh, randomly, and I had to Google venture capital. (laughs) Um, And I was like, oh, well... Sounds interesting, sure. Yeah, so I, I met for a few coffee meetings, and then in November, we we closed around, um, and that's when, I, that's when I became CEO, and yeah, for the next seven years, we sort of, you know, we grew 100% year over year, and, and every year, I think, you know, 2009 to 2012, I was down in the valley, or out here in Boston, or in New York, yep. pitching like crazy. So eventually, I did find an investor who, who sort of uh, believed in us, in the market, and I think you can still go back and read the 2012 fundraising blog post and just, you know, get this like sense of extraordinary excitement and elation and relief.
0: Yeah. All right, so I want to I fast forward a little bit. You know, for your new company, for SparkToro, you've taken a very different route uh, for funding.
1: There's a few things that I, I, I realized, I think, as I, you know, grew older, got more mature and had more experience around this stuff. Uh, one... I don't think the venture model is terrible. If you are an investor, um, I think it can work really well. You place, you know, a hundred bets. Five of those bets pay off, and they pay for the sins of the other ninety-five. Yep. If, however, you are an entrepreneur, the odds are stacked against you terribly. Right? Like you might think you're one of the five, but statistically speaking, you're one of the ninety-five. Right? So in those cases where where you return you know, very little or nothing or just not a not a sort of interesting multiplier to the fund, uh, very often that does not have a very fun ride for the entrepreneur yeah. um, or for the team around them. Uh, it often sucks for the customers of that company, right, who don't get sort of the product and the service that they hope for, at least not for a long time. Um, it's, I think, extremely not fun for the friends and family of the entrepreneur and leadership team and sort of early founding team. Um, and it's not, it's less financially rewarding than most big company jobs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, it, you know, it's, it's just a gamble, right? If you, you know, if, if those are the, the dice you want to roll, yeah. the casino is happy to you know, have you come in. But I think for most businesses, it's, it's not great. And, uh, I mean, the other, the other big thing that I realized with SparkToro is I don't, I am not passionate about building a monopoly. In fact, I would say I'm the opposite of that. I don't really like monopolies. I don't think they're a societal or economic good. I I, I don't think so highly of myself that I, you know, sort of have to, to be, be the that. Guy. Yeah, like I, I think I would be a very happy person with a company that you know makes a few million dollars a year in revenue and a good portion of that as profit. Uh, but that model is totally unaligned with institutional capital. Right. And so I need an alternative. And very frankly, there's not a lot out there. And so we had to roll our own. Uh, And so basically what we did is we crafted a very unique structure. You can find the documents on the SparkToro blog. I I put everything in an open source uh, Google Drive folder, and I had our attorneys spend a few extra hours kind of making it open source so that anyone can plug in their information and use it. And a few companies already have, which is awesome. And basically, the structure is an angel investment round where 35 investors put in between... Twenty-five and hundred thousand each uh, they own a pretty similar you know between 20 and 25 percent which is pretty standard for, for sort of angel type rounds even in the venture world and they have the option of you know getting either their uh, money back or their pro rata in an acquisition they also get uh, dividends paid to them uh, from profits so even if you think well is spark going to be a five or 10x return maybe not what but- the risk out. Yeah, right. Yeah. The first, the first uh, 1.3 million, which is how much we raise, the first 1.3 million in profit that we make goes back to investors, and that's before sort of Casey and I can bring our salaries up to market, and that's uh, before we get any participation in the profits. And so this is a way to like be very investor friendly, but also very founder friendly. Very frankly, SparkToro could be a great success to its investors if it only ever reached three million dollars in revenue which yeah. is extraordinarily unusual.
0: That is a different bar than different. most companies. Yeah.
1: Now, granted, that's not what I want to build. Yep. I would like to build a, a big, exciting company that, you know, I hope that I think this might be a great big market. But I think it's crazy to sign yourself up for, we will absolutely fail unless this is a billion-dollar market.
0: Right. What? <laughs> so here's the thing. That sounds sane. <laughs> Why do you think so many companies are still going after the big early funding?
1: Um, I think this is actually an ugly externality of a law that was changed in the 70s or 80s around capital gains taxes.
0: Oh, we, we just got real.
1: No, I'm serious. So, like, <laughs> so uh, basically, the, the, the creation of venture capital and private equity as, you know, as asset classes came about because... People with lots of money did not want to pay taxes on their gains. So mm. they lobbied the government to have you know, this much smaller, like, well, what if we invest in stocks and we make gains in stocks? Okay, we'll only tax you whatever it is, 12%, 15%, uh, 18%, right. those kinds of things, instead of 35, 40, 50, or much higher numbers that, that were previously around. And so you got capital flooding into these asset classes and then seeking returns in them and venture funds and private equity funds and accelerators all take advantage of that. So, you know, if, if tax avoidance is what is driving, you know, this field, then you're going to have people looking for, well, how do we make sure that this is considered stock in like a corporation? And, you know, I don't want to get dividend earnings. I don't want to get yep. profits. I want unprofitable companies that have high growth that then have, an, you know, a small percent who have a big exit.
0: You want the big payout and the big risk.
1: Exactly
0: right. In your book, you've you've written a bit about you know as you've grown in your career, starting to learn to deal with your own areas of weakness. Give me some examples of where that has come to light over your time at Moz, even today as you're sort of starting again to build a new company.
1: Yeah, I think one of the areas that I am personally very mm, not suited for. One of those things that takes energy away from me mm-hmm. and then gives gives me energy is sort of the politics of larger companies and the challenges of dealing with a team of 70, 80, 100 plus and going up from there versus the sort of camaraderie and relative simplicity of a team where everyone knows everyone,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which happens you know somewhere around the 50, 60 zone that that stops happening. I'm not sure that I – maybe someday in the far future – We'll be doing this interview again, and I'll I'll say like, oh, I think I figured that out, and I got better at it, or I grew a thicker skin, or but I, I like I I really really care about people, not like I, I care about people broadly and also individually. Okay, and I think the latter is quite a weakness for a leader at a large company, right? Because the job of a leader at a large company is to um, you know, do like Spock from Star Trek and sort of sacrifice the good of the few or the one for the many. And I am not good at it. Yeah. I'm not good at it. And I'm not good at living with the consequences of it. And I'm not good at dealing with the stress and the pain of, of even the one person I feel like I let down or the person I, didn't, I feel like I didn't let down, but they feel let down. That haunts you. It does. It haunts me. I think that there are two diametrically opposed things that are both true, In the world of entrepreneurship, one of those is it is wonderful to have big dreams and to chase those dreams with your whole heart. And the other is it is wonderful to have small dreams and be able to accomplish those small dreams. Yeah.
0: Interested in picking the minds of self made entrepreneurs? Then check out the Growth Everywhere podcast, hosted by Eric Sue. Eric interviews entrepreneurs who took an idea from a garage or a bakery in the case of Larry Kim and turned it into a multi-million dollar business. Some of our favorites, Hooked author Nir Ayal on why products become so addictive, The League founder Amanda Bradford on creating an exclusive dating app for successful professionals, and FabFitFun co-founder Michael Brukim on why he went into the subscription lifestyle business. Find growth everywhere wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, back to the show. In the tech space, there's this constant kind of glorification of like, oh, it's the hustle, and it's you know oh, my
1: second least favorite word.
0: Yeah, work hard, play hard, stay up all night, move fast and break things. You know, and by the way that you are grimacing, it feels like that's not exactly the kind of company you place all around. your
1: meals with Soylent,
0: yeah. tech bro. <laughs> <laughs> Is that? Do you feel like there's a sea change happening? Are there more people? like with your mentality these days, that are really sort of starting to think more about reasonable ambitions?
1: I I wish the answer to that were yes. I'm not sure if we're just in... Like if I live in a little bubble where I've surrounded myself with the people who think like, it is okay to work 35 hours in a week and get done what you need to get done and then not beat yourself up the rest of the week because you're spending time with your family or you're relaxing, you're... um, this is, this is my humble brag of the moment. On Tuesday night, I got to play Dungeons and Dragons with Anita Sarkeesian. Like, I anybody. there's else? no way you know? that I am cool enough to be able to do that. No way in the whole world that, like... I,
0: How did that come about?
1: Oh my God. Uh, our friend Dan Shapiro is friends with Anita, and she was in Seattle visiting for PAX, and she came over to our house, and we played D&D, and it came was... came to your house? Yes, to my house. My table is now sacred. Yeah. Geraldine and I were just playing, trying to play it cool the whole time. We're like, oh, no, starstruck, yeah, it's really cool, <laughs> whatever.
0: <laughs> so, okay, when you are not doing just bizarrely awesome things like that, what does a typical week look like for you if you are trying to build this company where you can go home at the end of the day? What does your schedule look like right now?
1: Yeah, so uh, actually this is, this is another big change for me. I am working from home for the first time in my Adult life, my career. Oh,
0: I'm a big fan of that.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's been really wonderful. Um, I, I I am much more productive, right? So if you know if the the quantity of work is is sort of X, I felt like I was always struggling to get done X, and also to not be a shut up and go away from me. Person at work right. Right, at the office when you're surrounded by dozens or hundreds of your coworkers. Um, and, and you don't you don't want to be perceived as someone who like sends other people away and, and doesn't have time for them. But at the same time, you know, if you have a lot to do, yeah. uh, that's really hard. Whereas I, I have literally found myself in box zero, all the things I promised myself and Casey that I would do are done, and it's 3:30 p.m. And I'm like, oh, oh God, what's happening right yeah. now? <laughs> what is going on? Um, nobody
0: moved. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a pull with SparkToro to do everything differently than you did with your previous companies? Or are there things that you're carrying over?
1: One of the things that um, I absolutely realized is that when you are building an audience, when you can build an audience before you have a product, that can be a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. So um, Casey and I have been taking a little bit of a different approach. You probably have noticed I'm not like blogging every night anymore, uh, but instead trying to take a more scalable tool-like approach. So we're trying to build some free tools, free resources, the trending thing. Uh, I think we're, in a few weeks here, we're going to have a what percent of your followers are Russian bots tool. Um,
0: Always a crowd pleaser.
1: Yeah, no, yeah. I should go over real well in some places. Yep. Um, <laughs> and uh, I I was thinking I should write an op-ed for the New York Times about it, maybe.
0: Just submit it anonymously if you can. Okay, yeah, that's it's a good again. idea. Yeah. Um,
1: the, uh, yeah and and so I think that I think that I failed at Moz for a long time to tell great to tell a great story about what the company was and why it existed and instead was sort of telling mostly SEO tactics to, yep. Yeah.
0: So what are you thinking the story of Spark Toro will become?
1: Uh hard to say now that's I'm still in research phase on that but sort of two two ideas. One this idea that it is lunacy to take all of your marketing budget and effort and spend it almost exclusively on Google and Facebook ads, which uh, let's be honest, a ton of companies do exactly that. And Mm -hmm. that that is why those companies, those two companies are so powerful. Uh, However, I think that it's really hard to go the other direction to say, hang on, what are all of the places that I could do marketing and still reach my audience if I don't have Google and Facebook algorithmically, programmatically figuring that out for me. And I think if if SparkToro can help make that transparent, that does two wonderful things. One, I think marketers will spend their budgets more wisely and their efforts more wisely, organic right. and paid. Uh, I also think there's a tremendous number of content creators and influencers and podcasters and media organizations and journalists, right, and all these people who are influencing these groups uh, that Marketers would kill to reach who have no access other than, well, I guess I'll put some AdSense or some, you know, Facebook retargeting on my page and fingers crossed.
0: Total mystery of how to get discovered.
1: Yeah. And that, that sucks too. And so I think this, you know, the story for both of these sides is we will help you find each other. We're just going to tell you, oh, you want to see what chefs in Los Angeles pay attention to? Well, it turns out this YouTube channel is watched by a lot of them, and uh, these three podcasts are very big with them, and these two events, and these six blogs, and this, you know, media source, and Eater Los Angeles, you know, whatever it is, yeah, right?
0: Absolutely, I am very excited to see the story of SparkToro Toro continue to develop and take shape. Um, and I thank you so much for spending the time with us. Oh
1: my gosh, Megan, thank you so much for having me. Cheers. <clears throat>
0: Today's episode was produced by Matthew Brown. We'd like to thank Courtney Dager and the rest of the Inbound team for inviting us into their cozy little podcast space. It was just delightful. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, I'm not mad. You still have plenty of time. And it just so happens that the perfect time is in 15 seconds when the episode ends and you need to find your next show to listen to. So do me a favor and hit that subscribe button then. You're my favorite. As always, I'm Megan Keeney Anderson, and thanks for listening.